This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Pray with me. Jesus, we recognize your presence with us today. Would you speak? Holy Spirit, would you stir our hearts? Would these not just be words on a page, but would they be breath and life for our soul? Teach us what it means to be uh, true worshipers during our time together this morning, please. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. My name is Ryan Paulson. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new with us, just want to say welcome. Uh, we are in week three of a series that we're calling Tune My Heart. Tune My Heart. It's a line from a song that, that a man named Robert Robinson wrote back in 1757. At the age of 22, he wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the first line of that song uh, says, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And as I was singing that a little while back, I started to wrestle a little bit with God. God, how do you tune our heart? How do you you reach down inside of us and and that which is sometimes a little bit um, off tune, how do you bring it back? And Robinson, at the young age of 22, puts his finger on uh, something that's true of all of humanity, and we know this, it's that the heart can be both in tune and out of tune. We go through seasons of life that are vibrant and life-giving and alive, and then we also walk through seasons that are dry and desolate and painful. And so he asks this question, or he implies this question, God, how does the heart get tuned? And, And he answers it by saying, it's only you, Jesus, that can tune the heart. And so in this song, he asks God, would you tune my heart? And over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be asking God as well. And for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus, they've had these practices or disciplines where they've asked God through these disciplines, God, would you tune my heart to, to sing thy grace? Last week, we looked at the scriptures and we said, all right, Lord, how do you through the scriptures tune our heart to sing thy grace? And today we're going to look at a second discipline or practice that people have typically used to say back to God, God, would you tune our hearts? I pulled um, a little bit of an audible Omaha um, today. <laughs> uh, I was planning on teaching something else this morning. And then when, um, well, well, you guys know the Broncos play today in a few minutes. It was weird to see so many people that normally come to the second service at the first service. I don't know why, but... Um, they didn't have a lot of confidence in me finishing on time, I guess. <laughs> you're, you're more brave. <laughs> Congratulations. Bravo. I was going to teach on something else, and I decided, you know, with, with the event coming up this afternoon, I thought that maybe as we look at that and try to recognize some of the things that go on in our heart and our soul as we watch the game, that maybe God would, would draw some parallels for us uh, for what we do on a Sunday morning. I've read that worship is sort of on the decline. I don't know that I believe that. Let me show you why. (laughs) 
It's not just him. I mean, it's people everywhere, right? I mean, you fill stadiums full of, of people who, who dress up and like a maniac will go to a game and yell and scream at the top of their lungs for three hours. Um, some people have misdirected worship too. I mean, are you kidding me? The Raiders? Come on now. Come on now. I want to propose to you that what goes on in a stadium on Sunday afternoons is a form of worship. It's attributing worth to something that is happening or a people or a group. It's desiring an outcome that was going to emotionally and in some ways physically influence the way that we go about living, right? So so we're a little bit emotionally invested in what happens at one o'clock today, aren't we? If we could be honest. Um, You know, you could go on. So... (laughs) Worship in all sorts of different elements, right? It's a little too warm in here for you. I don't want to hear you complain. This guy's worshiping just fine, zero degrees. And then, you know, if you're a Bronco fan, you've seen this for 30 plus years on the sidelines. I want to propose to you that in the very core of our DNA, we are worshipers. We attribute worth to things. And every one of our hearts has a throne on it that needs to be filled and will be filled by something. Worship isn't a Christian thing. Worship is a human thing. We all attribute worship or worth and glory and honor to things, and we hope that in turn they will fill us and allow us to live in the way that we were designed to live. And, and a lot of the things we put, worship, we put our worship on let us down. Let us down. It's why people walk in in hopelessness and depression and wandering. And the God of the universe invites us. And I want to propose to you that it's one of the most powerful ways that he tunes the human heart. He invites us to be worshipers. Not just on Sunday mornings or on Sunday afternoons. But throughout the course of our life. This word worship literally means, in the New Testament, the Greek word literally means to kiss towards. It carries with it this idea of bowing down in reverence. It carries with it this implication of of honor or respect or superiority. As it's applied to God, worship's an appropriate response to who God is and to what he's done. But it doesn't just get pointed to God, this thing that we call worship. It gets pointed to anything that the human heart ascribes value to and finds worth in and puts their hope in. I think worship's a slippery thing. It can be hard to keep our heart and our mind focused on objects that are actually worthy of our worship because we're so wired to be worshipers. I think the way that Oswald Chambers puts it was pretty good when he said, worshiping God is the greatest essential of spiritual fitness. That this act of worship, of giving God worth and glory and honor and praise does something inside of us. It tunes the heart as it were. And I want to teach you over the next few minutes uh, one of uh, the passages of scripture that I think paints one of the most sweeping and in-depth pictures of worship. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm chapter 95. 
This is a massive subject. We did a series on it um, about a year ago called Lives in Orbit. Uh, It was only a few weeks long and barely scratched the surface. So if I leave something out this morning, you can send me an email. And my email and response will be, I left way more out than that. Okay? We have, there's, the uh, predominant portion of the scriptures are about worship. But I want to, from Psalm 95, I want to point out five truths of worship that tune our hearts to sing thy grace, to sing God's grace. Truths that really shape and define and form what, as followers of Christ, we gather together to do corporately and what we are called to live out individually all throughout the week. Okay, Psalm 95. And we're going to ask God to teach us what it looks like to tune our hearts through this act of worship. The psalmist starts in Psalm 95, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. So so he points out a few things in here that I want to draw our attention to. One, this psalm is a psalm of corporate worship. Notice the plural. Let us come together. Let us sing to the Lord. The Bible is going to talk a lot about both private or individual worship and public worship, this psalm is going to point us in the direction of corporate public worship. Um, Just in my own personal life over the last few years, God's been, I think, shaping and refining me more on what it looks like to not just worship corporately, but to have times of worship privately. I think everything that we're going to look at today applies to both the corporate mindset of worship and what we do as we come together on Sunday mornings, and your worship as an individual throughout the week. Here's what he says. Come let us, let us sing to the Lord. And so here's the first truth I want to point out. That worship tunes our heart by recalibrating or redirecting our focus or our orientation to God. First thing the psalmist says, come. Let's sing, let's worship, let's honor God. Because here's the truth of the matter. Will you look up at me for just a moment? The object of your worship, the gaze of your soul, what your soul looks at will determine the object of your worship and the object of your worship will determine the course of your life. This is serious business. And I think so many times this truth of of who we worship slips and and devolves. And so the Bible's always going to remind us and point us back to, this is about God. This is about him. This is about his person, lifting him high and remembering all that he's done. It's one of the reasons that Paul writes to the church at Colossae and says, set your minds on things that are above. Why? Because the world that we live in is going to make it difficult to remember this truth if we're not intentional about directing the gaze of our soul to him. He says, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. One of the main ways that I've seen this truth slip in my life is what I call um, being sort of a part of the uh, selfie, quote-unquote, generation, or hashtag selfie right? I mean, where we, we love taking pictures of ourselves, We love writing about ourselves, We love updating you on what we're doing. Um, today, I brushed my teeth. Oh, thank you. 
bravo. Um, I was wondering. But isn't it true that we're part of this sort of like selfie culture where we just want to, and, and listen, it's always been like that. We just have more platforms for it now, okay? It's always been like that and where we can, we want to lift ourselves high. We want to promote ourselves, and we want to say how great we are. And worship at its very core says, no, let's point it back to the only one who's worthy of this life being about, and it's about him. That's where it starts. That's where the psalmist starts. And let me point you to this great, amazing, unbelievable God. And true worship in its very incipient stages takes our hearts and our minds and our desires off of us and points them heavenward to him. One of the saddest things about the so-called worship wars are that I think they miss this very core essential piece where a lot of the arguments that churches have are about preference. And we missed it, didn't we? I mean, even then, when we start saying, well, I like this and I like that, and didn't we automatically miss that this is about God? This is about lifting him high? So I said in the beginning that this is a huge topic. Um, And one of the things I want to do is teach us how to tune our hearts through worship. But I also want to give some philosophical reasons why we do some of the things we do. Um, Why we sing some of the songs that we sing. Here's the reality, you guys. Here's the reality. If we were to take a survey of every person in this church, hey, tell us what you want us to do music-wise, we would be confused Because my guess is that most of us listen to different stations on the radio in our car, right? I mean, so so we have some common denominators, I'm sure, but I I know we have people here who go, hey, I wish we sang more hymns. Get it. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure we have some people who say, I wish we didn't sing those hymns. They're just not as brave to say amen, right? (laughs) You you guys don't know the game. That's the thing. No, I'm just kidding. And the truth of the matter is, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing songs about Jesus. And the Bible doesn't teach us what songs we should sing or how we should sing them or what instruments we should use and what we shouldn't and what our decibel level shouldn't be. There's a lot of freedom in that. I think the Bible intentionally actually leaves that stuff out. But here's what it doesn't leave out, who our worship's about and who it's directed towards. So here's what we're going to do. Aaron and I talk about this a lot. We are going to live in the tension. We're going to live in the tension. We're going to do our best to constantly say, all right, we're not making everyone happy. That's a tough place to be in. Just going to be honest with you. Grades against me. I want to make every one of you happy. But then we'd have two different worship styles. It's impossible. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to live under the reality and the value that we are part of something ancient and beautiful. And so we're going to sing hymns like, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, 200 plus years old, because it's true and it exalts Jesus. We're gonna sing and we're gonna sing songs also because God isn't just ancient, He's also present. 
right? So we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss the fact that God is stirring people, musicians, poets, artists today to declare the goodness of his gospel. And we want, to, we want to put both of those forward and say, we want to be a church that both celebrates that God is ancient. And back in 1757, he was. And back a few millennia ago, he was. And today, he is. And there's a tension there. Because I know I won't make all of you happy. I wish I could. But we'd have two different, 200 today different churches. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you, will you celebrate with me and value both the ancient and the present. Just because a song was written a long time ago doesn't mean it's any theologically more correct. There's a lot of theologically bad hymns. There are. Just because it was written a few hundred years ago doesn't mean it's more true. And there's a lot of really bad choruses in modern worship songs. We're going to sing the ones that are about Jesus, okay? And we're going to sing the ones that lift him high and that are true to the scriptures and he is going to be the object of our worship. We're going to do our best. But we're ultimately going to be about God. See, the, the gospel is really the undergirding, the grounding for all of this that we do as a corporate body. I mean, listen to what Peter writes to these churches. He says, but you are a, ro- a chosen race. It's you. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He says, That's the, that is the core of worship. You're called out of darkness and into light. Who cares if we use an organ? Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Let me give you just a few practical tips because this is a slippery truth, as I said. It can easily become about us. That the, the truth that it's about God is slippery, and so I think we need to be intentional about orienting ourselves to God in worship. Let me give you two practical ways that I think that this might be helpful for you. One, for public worship, can I encourage you? to get to church a few minutes early. Because my guess is that in just rushing in from your car and whatever went on this morning as you're getting your, maybe your kids ready or driving here and the conversation you had with your spouse on the way here and walking into these doors, that maybe you're not automatically ready to hit the ground running in worship of God. Just gonna throw it out there. That it might be helpful for your soul to get here a few minutes early to just Pause. And say to God, God, speak to me. I'm quiet and present. Would you move? And see, both of you that were here early this morning, you know that's true. (laughs) This is not about guilt. This is about growth, okay? (laughs) It's why we do a call to worship. Maybe the same would be true for you privately, that you wake up and in the morning you just take a moment before your feet hit the ground to say to God, God, would you allow this day to be about you? The psalmist starts off by saying, let's sing to the Lord. He continues. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now that's great news for you. 
Okay, because it doesn't, it doesn't say, hey, let, let's make an, an on-tune, on-key noise. It doesn't say, let's make a beautiful noise. Some of you don't. But you can make a joyful noise. To the rock of our salvation, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise with songs of praise. It is impossible to enter into true worship as a passive observer. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. And so the psalmist points out that worship tunes our heart by demanding, beckoning, calling our engagement. He says, sing. Make a joyful noise. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Can I get on my soapbox for a second as if I'm not already, okay? Just for a moment. Um, it's, it's, I've seen this happen in churches where less and less you see, especially men who stop singing. I don't know, what, I don't know necessarily what that's about. But I want to invite especially the men of this church to re-engage God in worship. And I know singing may not be something that you normally do. I get that. But God is inviting us men to lead this charge, to worship this great God, not passively sitting back, but actively engaging him and declaring his praise. And I don't care if you have a bad voice. We won't give you a mic if you do, but... It doesn't mean you can't sing joyfully and lead the charge in what this looks like and what this means. But look at what the psalmist says. There's engagement on a whole lot of levels. There is engagement with the voice and saying, we're going to sing to you. We're going to, with our mouth, declare your praise and declare your honor and declare your splendor. We're going to do that. There's an engagement, secondly, with the mind, where he says, let us come with thanksgiving. It's, it's us thinking about, God, what you've done and who you've made us to be in light of who you are, the way that you've redeemed us. It's, you don't check your mind at the door when we come together for worship. You need it. You need to be engaged and working mentally to think about what God's done and how he's saved and how he's redeemed there's a huge educational element when we sing songs where we start to sing and we think, God, I didn't know that was true about you. And God, I didn't believe that was true about me. And God, I can't believe it's true about them. And wow. See, see true worship is engaged both body, voice, and mind, truth, about who Jesus is. And I would say, lastly, it's also engaging our emotions. That that's a necessary part of true worship is that the, the, not just the voice and the body, not just the intellect, but the actual soul, the heart, is engaged also. That's why the psalmist talks about singing. Because singing takes truth and combines it with melody and somehow it sinks it deeper into the human soul, doesn't it? That's, that can be difficult to engage on that emotional, heartfelt level. But I think it's what Jesus demands of us. Listen to what he, this interaction he had with a Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, he has this great interaction. And so I, I wrote on our Tune My Heart blog this week about how worship wars have been going on for 2,000 years. That's, that should be a little bit comforting to you. We may not resolve them all here at South. Just going to throw it out there. May not. 
So, so when Jesus has an interaction with this woman, this woman at the well, and she recognizes because of what Jesus knows about her personal life, that he's not just a normal guy walking down the street. She says, you're, you're like a prophet. You're really high up there. You must commune with God or something to know all that you know. And she says, ah, 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 I have a question, a burning question that we all want to know. Tell us, Jesus, about worship. Where's the right place to worship? Should we worship on the mountain or should we worship in the temple? Should we worship in Samaria or in Jerusalem? Jesus, where end the worshipers already, will ya? Here's what he says. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers, and, and that's what we want to be, isn't it? True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. Well, 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 she wants to know where. She wants to know how. And he goes, I'll, I'll tell you how. Spirit and truth. Anytime, any place, spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I don't think this is, he's not talking here about the Holy Spirit. I think he's talking about the spirit that's within us that needs to be engaged in the reality of who he is. And anytime we're engaged with who God is, he says, worship can happen. But it demands our engagement. It demands our presence. Not just physically, but to be actually, emotionally, intellectually here. See, there's a piece of your heart and your mind that will not engage the gospel unless you engage in worship. Just won't. Okay, moving forward. He goes on to say, For the Lord is a great God, and a great king above all gods. And his, in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. It's as though the psalmist says, can I tell you a little bit about my God? It's as though he just wants to brag on God. He's sort of giving us a Cliff Notes version of his resume. He's like, look around you. Everything is his. Look at the mountains. Yeah, he owns that. And the depths of the sea, he's there also. The psalmist just takes this step back and goes, I just want to declare his goodness for a moment. So will you listen? Will you listen? He's the creator, the sustainer, the savior, the creator of everything you see around you. He says he's above all. And you see, worship tunes our heart by inspiring our exaltation, that we would be a people who lift Jesus high, that declare the goodness and the grace and the glory of his name. Worship's built on the truth of who God is and what he's done, his majesty, his splendor, his holiness. And as we lift him high, we start to see ourselves in the reality of who we really are also. But there's a piece of worship that's saying, can I tell you about him? Can I tell you how great he is? Whenever I do premarital counseling, one of the first sessions we do, uh, I ask 
each, each, each uh, person to describe for me their future spouse as if I'd never met them before. And each person will inevitably say, oh, they are the most gentle, the most loving, the most caring, the most beautiful person I've ever met in my whole life. It's evangelism is what it is. And I think that's what the psalmist says here. He says, let me tell you about my God because he's just, he's great. He made it all. He holds it all together. He's worthy of our honor and our glory and our praise. So worship is saying back to God. Part of it is saying back to God the truth of who God is and what he's done. There's there's an evangelistic element involved in worship. Listen to, uh, listen to the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. Let me read this quote to you. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's, it's, it is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people you are with care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. He says part of what we do in in declaring God's goodness is what he designed us for, and it allows us to walk in his joy, his joy. And so all throughout time, throughout the course of history, uh, God invited the nation of Israel uh, to declare his goodness and his praise and his honor and his glory in such a way that the nations would join to sing with them. He said, like, put my grandeur, put my beauty on display in the way that you worship, that the nations might gather together with you and see my glory and praise my name. Listen to Psalm chapter 67. May God be gracious to us, the psalmist writes, and bless us. And make his face shine upon us, Selah. Like, just pause and soak there for a moment. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations, let the people praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you, he says. There's a piece of what we do here that's intended to be evangelistic. The way that we gather together and declare the praise and the worship of God is meant to be done in such a way that unbelievers look on at us and go, I think I might want to know that God. In the same way that that a future spouse talks about their future spouse, and I go, wow, I'd really like to get to know them better. The same is true about worship when we get together and sing songs about, man, I just want to shout it from the rooftops. You're unbelievable. The scriptural intention is that unbelievers will be in our presence and look at us worshiping God in such a way where they go, he must be good. He must be good. Let me tell you, the scriptures do speak to this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, Paul discusses with the Corinthian church how to do public worship. And some of the do not do this, but he also gives some principles that I think need to underlie our vision moving forward. 
He's talking about speaking in tongues in a public worship gathering. And here's what he writes. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? It's a rhetorical question. The answer would be, yeah. But, put the discussion of tongues aside for a moment. Look at what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that when you gather together as a public corporate worship gathering, expect that unbelievers will be there. One. Two. Worship God in a way that is not catered to them. We will never cater to the unbeliever. That's not our goal here. But our goal is to worship in a way where they can understand and potentially engage to see the glory and goodness of our God. That's what Paul says, right? But if all prophecy and unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. He says the secrets of the heart are disclosed. So this is potentially what happens when the unbeliever comes in and encounters the worshiping community of faith. His heart, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Wow. How's that for one of the Goals of coming together corporately. So hey, if you're not here, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I just tell you he's awesome? And we sing about him because he's pricked our hearts in such a way that we're completely different and we believe that his word breathes life into the darkest of situations. He's beautiful and we want you to know him. We want you to know him. So here's what we're going to do as a body, sort of philosophically now and also moving forward. We want to expect that unbelievers are here in worship with us. In fact, we're going to pray that they are more and more. That non-believers will find the praise of God's people comprehensible. They'll understand it. So we're going to try our best. I'm going to try my best to preach in the vernacular of the day. I'm not going to preach in Old English. Praise be to God. I'm going to preach in normal language. If we use a theological term, I'm going to try my best to define it. Because if you're, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, we want you to know him. And so we don't just want to talk about gibberish. We want to talk about real life. That's what the Bible talks about. And third, our hope is that you would, if you're an unbeliever, fall under the conviction of the reality of God's word because of our time together. Please hear me. We're, not, we're never going to dumb down worship. In fact, we're going to lift God high because we believe that's actually better evangelistically than just dumbing it down theologically. If you have any other questions about that, Aaron's going to be doing a uh, seminar on worship <clears throat> on February 9th, and I would invite you to go ask him any questions you have for me, okay? <laughs> just kidding. All right, moving forward, the psalmist says, just okay, sorry, focus here, focus here, he says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker.
So he orients. He says, God, this is about you. He engages through song. He exalts through truth. And then he says, Lord, I've come. And I simply need to fall at your feet in adoration. That worship, I think the psalmist would say, tunes our heart through stirring our adoration. And so he talks about these physical postures. He says, we, 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 we kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. We come and we bow down, he says. You know, something happens in you. Something happens in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit as you take on a different posture in worship. God does something as you bow down and we, we sing songs where, where we bow down before the throne and, and as we do that, as we actually physically bow down, God starts to stir deeper into our hearts the truth that we come before him humbly. We come before him needy. We come before him and worship and honor and glory. Hey, this just in, I don't think that worship in heaven is characterized by people with their hands in their pockets. Just gonna throw it out there. I just don't think it is. And some of us, we engage God best like that. And I see that. I'm okay with that. But some of us, I think, most of us would benefit by embracing some of the postures that Scripture talks about. Say, God, we bow before you. We, we raise our hands in prayer, in praise, in declaration. And as you do that, he stirs something powerful in he says, I think the psalmist would say that true adoration, posture matters. Now, physically, we can do that physically here, but I think the posture of our heart is what really matters throughout the week as we engage in not just corporate public worship, but in private daily worship, that the posture we come before God with of adoration of our hearts bowed low before him it's where true worship is really found on a daily basis. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He says that that's worship, acceptable worship. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Saying to God, God, you have my whole life. And, and I suggest, maybe, if it's hard for us to bow down in here physically, if it's hard for us to raise our hands in here physically, if it's hard for us to maybe just even go like this in here physically, I would say it's nearly impossible for us to live like that, surrendered fully out there. And this isn't about guilt, this is about growth. So let me, let me just... Insert here, I would love to invite you as we respond in worship in the next few minutes here to experiment, to see what God might do in your heart as you respond with your body a little bit differently than maybe you normally do. The principle, though, the principle is that God tunes our heart as we come and we adore. We just go, God, you are beautiful, and I humbly submit to your lordship.
Philemon. He says, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And so the psalmist, he he reorients us to God. He invites us to engage and to declare and exalt the name of Jesus. And then he says, and and we adore him, humbly bow down at his throne. And I think what he would suggest is that when we do all those things, the natural byproduct is intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. He tunes our heart by leading us into intimacy. He goes, you are our God, not just the creator of the mountains and and holding the depths of the sea in your very hands, but but you are our God. You care about us. We're your people, the people of your pasture. And God, you look on us and you love us and you're for us. And I think he would suggest that when we really enter into true worship, the natural byproduct is intimacy with our great God. And so maybe some of the reasons that we feel like there's roadblocks in our relationship with the Lord is because it's been a long time since we actually engaged in true biblical worship that went far beyond the style of the music that went far beyond the lighting in the sanctuary, that went far beyond the decibel level of the speakers, and that really entered in to the presence of our great God. It's one of the most powerful tuners for the human soul. And it's God's invitation to you, not just when we gather together on Sunday morning, it is his invitation then, But not only then, it's his invitation to you every single day of the week. And as our band comes back up, we're going to respond um, with a time of musical worship. As we do that, I want to tell you the scriptures actually say that God inhabits the praise of his people. So so it makes sense for the psalmist to declare, God, we are the people of your pasture. You are our God. He has this renewed sense of intimacy as he sings with joy and declares salvation and enters with thanksgiving and lifts high the name of Jesus. The natural response is, wow, God, you are here and you care about me because God inhabits the praise of his people. So I want to invite us over the next few minutes to really get after it. I mean, like, better than if you were 50-yard line, front row of the Bronco game, get after it. And, And maybe that's new for you, and if it is, great, praise be to God. I'm just asking you for 15 minutes, will you try it? Maybe take on a different posture. Maybe it means Maybe it means bowing. Maybe it means raising your hands. Maybe it means saying like an amen at the end of a song. Maybe it means dancing in the aisle. (laughs) What it means. But I invite you, will you engage the God who's here, who's present, and who's declaring that he loves you? Will you exalt and lift his name high? And will you bow in adoration of who he is? Would you stand with me? and worship with me. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. 
Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.